So let's pray. Jesus, we ask you to come tonight. Prayer is a challenge, I believe, to most of us. And Lord, we need your wisdom, your input, your instruction, your inspiration. So come tonight, we pray in your name. Amen. We are looking at the three legs of the relationship stool. Bible for the purpose of a relationship of knowing Jesus, right? Not necessarily doctrinal or prophetic study or to figure out how to proof text that you're right, but to know Jesus. The second leg of the stool, prayer, for the purpose of communion. Not necessarily 911, God save me, but friendship, conversation. And thirdly, bubbling over, sharing. Not the uh, sharing where you go and grab people and try to convince them they're in the wrong church, but sharing that is the natural bubbling over of a great relationship that you're having. It's likened to eating, breathing, and exercising. And as we talked about when Morris Vendon went through his personal uh, spiritual struggles and finally went through the book Steps to Christ, underlining and read those things which were tangible and doable, these were the three things that he came up with. And they're the, what we call now the relationship stool. So tonight we want to talk about prayer for the purpose of communion. Let's begin in Luke chapter 11. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. Now I find it interesting. I doubt if Jesus picked 12 men to be his disciples who had no idea how to pray. These were Jewish men raised in a Jewish society, and I'm sure they'd been taught to say their prayers. If you were raised in a Christian home, I'm sure you were taught to say your prayers. As children, we're taught to say our prayers. Our parents help us with phrases, and we say our prayers. The problem is, I'm afraid prayer for too many of us has continued to be reciting words to God, speaking our words, saying all the necessary stuff, get her done, amen, finish, period, Close the door, we're on our way. And our prayers so often become a monologue. Now, when I read this verse, what I think I see, what my mind sees, is that Jesus got up a great while before day and he went out to some little place to pray alone and the disciples got up a little later and went out to find Jesus and as they come into the little clearing or wherever wherever he is, the little grove of trees or wherever, he's still praying. Now, what do you do when you walk into a room and somebody's in there already praying? I find it funny. Prayer meeting at my church, it's usually in a side room, in a, chairs in a circle. Uh, one of my elders is usually leading it. And uh, at prayer meeting, if I, when I'm there, I usually sit so I can see the door and I have my eyes open. Why? People stack up at the door. As if they can't come in until we're through praying. Well, we may be praying for 20 minutes. You know, if it's a group prayer, we're popcorn prayer, everybody's just putting their sentences in and we're praying away. We may be praying for half an hour. They're going to be standing there an awfully long time. So I'm usually glancing over every few seconds at the door. And when they come to the door, what do they do? They stop as if they can't come in during prayer. We're having a conversation with God. Come and join the conversation. So I'm going like this. Come on in. Come in. But I can just see the disciples. 
Jesus is praying, and they're kind of standing around the perimeter there. They don't want to interrupt. They don't want to be sacrilegious. They want to be careful here. And so they listen. But as they listen to Jesus pray, they evidently heard something they'd never experienced. What was it that they heard? I don't know. But when Jesus got done, they, it was like, we need to learn to pray like that. And so they asked Jesus, would you teach us to pray? We'd like to pray like you pray. Now, whatever the disciples heard, my guess is that they saw a level of communion with God going on that they had not experienced. So when Jesus went out to pray, were his prayers monologue or dialogue? Was it a one-way conversation or was it a two-way conversation? Here we have a little bit about Jesus in John. Actually, the Gospel of John gives us all of these verses. Chapter 5, verse 19, The Son is not able to do anything from Himself except what He might see the Father doing. For the Father loves the Son and is showing Him what all He Himself is doing. This is my own literal translation here. I'm not able to do from myself anything, for I'm not seeking my own wishes, but the wishes of Him who sent me. Jesus basically says, I don't write my own agenda. I don't decide what I'm going to do. I only do what the Father tells me. So his prayers must have been dialogue. He had to hear back or he wouldn't know what to do. Chapter 6, verse 38, I have come down from heaven, not in order that I might be doing my own wishes, but the wishes of him who sent me. The Father must have been showing him his wishes day by day. Chapter 8, verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And from myself I am doing nothing. But just as the Father taught me these things, I'm speaking. So evidently in prayer, the Father was teaching Jesus. Chapter 12, verse 49, I out of myself did not speak. The Father who sent me, himself to me, command has given what I might say and what I might speak. And I know that his command is eternal life. What then I am speaking, just as the Father has spoken to me, thus I am speaking. Again, I've given you a very little translation because it even makes it more clear that Jesus says, I'm hearing from the Father all the time and I'm simply passing on what he's telling me to say. And chapter 14, 10. Are you not believing that I am in the Father and the Father's in me? The words which I am saying to you from myself, I'm not speaking. So Jesus is very clear that he got his moment-by-moment, day-by-day instructions from God, which means his prayers must have been dialogue. Now, what is the biblical norm? Is prayer in the Bible monologue or dialogue? Or to put it this way, throughout Scripture, does God talk back? And I'd like to say yes, and I'm going to overwhelm you with a slide. That's why this slide has been produced. Here we go. Cain, Noah, Job, Abraham, go down the list. Hagar, Hagar was a slave, God talked back, right? Rebecca, a woman. And then you have all these great men and Moses and Aaron and Balaam, the false prophet, God talked back. Joshua, Deborah, Gideon, Manoah and his wife who had Samson, Samuel, David, Nathan, Solomon, Shimeiah. Most of us haven't even heard of him. The man of God from Judah, Elijah, Micaiah. Elisha, Jehaziel, and Zechariah, and of course the major and the minor prophets. The point I'm making out of this slide is simply this. The norm in the Bible is God talking back. And what about the New Testament? Well, 
Zechariah, Mary, Simeon, Joseph, John the Baptist, Philip, Saul, who became Paul, Ananias, Cornelius, Peter, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manan, Philip's daughters, Agabus, John the Revelator. The point is, basically anybody who talked to God in the Bible, God talked back. Which makes me ask the question, should our prayers be monologue or dialogue? How often are our prayers mainly monologue? Way too often. Should we believe and expect that God is going to talk back? And I have to say yes. If you'll notice in the book of James, James says if anyone lacks wisdom, ask of God. And he gives liberally without reproach. I don't know whether he's going to talk back in verbal tones or mental pictures or thoughts, but God's going to talk back. If you ask for wisdom, he will give you wisdom. And let you ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the waves of the sea tossed by the wind. Don't suppose that that man will receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. So we're to expect God to talk back. Isn't that right? James says we should expect it. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and God responded, it didn't rain. He prayed again, it rained. And the point of that verse from James seems to be that Elijah, in terms of hearing God, God hearing him and hearing back from God, is no different than the rest of us. As we saw on that list, God talked to what we call the great men, and he talked to some very insignificant persons, so to speak, servants and slaves and even false prophets and people we'd have probably ignored. I believe that the norm should be dialogue. Jesus anticipates further dialogue. He says, I will love him and I will manifest myself to him. He's going to show up. The helper whom the, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He'll teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So the Holy Spirit's going to communicate with us. It's going to be dialogue. I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. That sounds like Jesus to Nicodemus, right? Love to talk about spiritual things, but you wouldn't get it. And here, Jesus says to his disciples, I'd like to explain some things now, but mm, you wouldn't get it. However, when the Holy Spirit of truth has come, He'll guide you into all truth. He, he won't speak from himself. Whatever he hears, he will speak. He'll tell you things to come. He'll glorify me. He'll take of mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said he will take of mine and declare it to you. Jesus expects dialogue because he has more he wants to say to us. All good, effective communication involves dialogue. A relationship depends on dialogue. When parents, when the children leave home, the parents want to stay in contact. Why? We talked about it on our first night together. Remember Lee's mom saying, uh, keep in touch, Lee. We need it more than you do. When I left home, I didn't write. I didn't call. I was busy with my life. I didn't realize what that said to my own parents. My dad wrote letters to his mom and she wrote back from the time he left home until the time she died many decades later. Snail mail. 
You know, it's a lot of work to put a pen to paper and put it in an envelope and put a stamp on it and get it in the mail, isn't it? Especially now when we can just shoot off an email or shoot off a text. And all we have to do is talk to God. And we can expect that He will talk back. Any close relationship requires two-way communication. Absence of regular dialogue is a sign of distance and breakdown of relationship. Communion is a necessary ingredient for intimacy. We men, when we hear the word intimacy, we generally think of sex. When women hear the word intimacy, it usually involves more of a heart-to-heart communion. And God's favorite illustration of the kind of intimacy He wants with us is the intimacy between a husband and a wife. That requires dialogue. The Bible premise, I believe, is that God wants to communicate with us. He wants relationship. He desires it. He needs it. But He doesn't just desire us to talk to Him. He wants to talk back and be heard. No matter what's happening. Even if the choir in heaven is just about to sing the greatest anthem they have ever written and sung, and they've just started it, he's going to say, Hold on, folks. Somebody's calling in from earth. I got to take this. It's so much more than saying our prayers or telling God everything we need or advising him on what to do and how to run the universe. Who to fix, who to heal, who to help, when, where, and how. Prayer is so much more than that. So if God really wants to communicate with me, why am I not hearing more from him? Have you ever asked that question? Sometimes, where is he? And by the way, I will guarantee you, every time you go to pray needing to hear from God, Satan will tell you you're not going to hear anything. I always hear that. I need an answer. Oh, he he won't answer. It's like after 40 years, you'd think that would go away. But, you know, Satan's got a one-string violin on that one. If he can just get you to doubt God's going to answer, then you don't talk. Why don't we hear more from God? I want to use this verse in Psalm 46, 1. Be still and know. I want to suggest that the reason we don't hear more from God is because we're not still and we don't take the time to truly know him. I want to use two biblical figures to illustrate this. Number one, Elijah. Be still. Remember Elijah? He stood on Mount Carmel in front of, you know, 450 prophets of Baal and the king, any of which could have had his head in a moment. He stood in front of all the people who believed it was his fault they had been Hungry for three and a half years of famine. I mean, you talk about Elijah being in the middle of a lion's den. And yet he stands up there all day like a rock. Unmovable. Brave. He even pokes fun at those other prophets of Baal for a while. And finally, after near the end of the day, he rebuilds the altar of the Lord, douses it with water. You know, prays a simple prayer and God sends fire and burns up the rocks and the water and the sacrifice and everything. And the people are on their faces saying, the Lord, he is God. Then Elijah ends up virtually running a marathon in front of the king's chariots through the rain back to Jezreel, some 20-some miles. 
And he crawls under a bush somewhere, evidently, to try to get some sleep after a very long, hard day. And Jezebel sends a message, you're a dead man. And he who had stood like a rock in front of all the prophets of Baal ran at a threat from the head of women's ministries, so to speak. <laughs> and he ran for 40 days. And he wasn't going the direction God wanted him to go. But God fed him and helped him get there. And when he got there, Elijah went into a cave. And he spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, I checked that out in the Hebrew. Literally, it says, What is here for you, Elijah? I mean, think about it. You don't even have to explain the rest. You're a prophet. Prophets don't talk to rocks and jackrabbits. What's here for you? There's nobody to prophesy to. There's nobody to lead. There's nobody to teach my ways. What's here for you, Elijah? Oh, Elijah said, I've been zealous for the Lord God of hosts and the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I'm the only one left. I am preserving the faith. That's why I'm here. If they kill me, it'll be over. We call it the Elijah complex. You know, I'm the last man on earth. And God said, go out, get out of the cave, stand on the mountain before the Lord. And the Lord passed by. A great strong wind tore the mountain and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. That's not just a little breeze. That's a tornado, right? But the Lord wasn't in the wind. That wasn't God. And after the wind, an earthquake. But God wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake of fire, the Lord was not in the fires. God's good at getting our attention, isn't he? He can make things such that he has our attention. You know, the wind, the fire, the, the earthquake. Elijah's, he's got his attention now. And after that, a still, small voice. Literally, the sound of silence soft. The word still is used for silence or calm or gentle. Not necessarily total silence, but a whisper. And the word small means fine, soft, delicate, thin, like dust or fine hair or frost on the ground. You know, we think, and I think Elijah thought, and most of the time people think, when God speaks, there's going to be wind and fire and earthquakes. I mean, isn't that what he did on Mount Sinai? When God shows up, it's going to be loud. Have you discovered yet that yelling does not promote intimacy? Do I need to say that again? <laughs> Have we discovered yet that yelling does not promote intimacy? Intimacy is promoted by whispering in each other's ears, not by shouting. And what is God looking for? Is God looking to get us in line like a drill sergeant? Or is God looking for intimacy? God is looking for intimacy. And we want him to shout. And he wants to speak softly and get close. So God gets Elijah's attention. And then he whispers. Why don't we hear God more often in our lives? I think it's because we're not still. 
We don't take the time alone to be still and wait expectantly before God. We're not quiet, silent, not talking, listening. And God prefers to whisper. Yelling does not promote intimacy. You know how it works. We pray, we pray, we pray, we pray. And when we get done praying, we say amen. We've covered our list. We've covered our items. We say amen and we're off to the day or off to sleep. You know? And we're praying away and God's waiting to say something and we get done with our monologue. We say amen, which means over and out. We're done. I'm moving on. And God's going, but, 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 but. Oh, maybe tomorrow you'll wait and listen. We're not still. It wasn't until God could get Elijah still that he heard that voice. Be still and know. I want to turn to Enoch for know. We know so much about Enoch, and yet we know so little about Enoch. This is about all we know. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. As one old preacher put it, Enoch and God were walking along one day, and God said, I think we're closer to my house than yours. Why don't you come on over? I go running most every morning with a, another man from my church who lives near me. and We have a kind of a canal area we run through. And um, there's a group of ladies that are out at about the same time, about 5, 5.15 in the morning. And they're loud talkers, <laughs> these four ladies are. Kind of a, you can hear them coming down the, the canal there, talking, talking, talking. They're walking away. It's usually still dark, and they're talking. What do you do when you walk with somebody? You usually talk. And in fact, my wife, who often takes a walk about the same time, but she's walking and I'm running and we're going slightly different directions, said she could hear Juan and I <laughs> Talking and talking while we were running. Uh, we run slow enough we can still talk, <laughs> evidently. You know, I ran a marathon when I turned 60. The only one I've ever run, it, I made it in 5 hours and 50 minutes. That's 13 minute and 20 second miles. I wasn't even halfway when the winners were crossing the finish line. But I ran a marathon. And people said, when are you going to run another one? I said, no, nah, I've done that. I don't ever want to do that again. As long as I live. There wasn't anybody to talk to. Boredom sets in. When we walk, we talk. And it says, Enoch walked with God. And that's the common word for walk, for walking from one place to another, to come, to go, to follow, to go about. Over 1,500 uses in the Old Testament. And the picture you get there is not that Enoch talked to God and then walked through his life. He walked through life talking with God. He didn't have his devotions and then go to his other life. He didn't have a compartmentalized life. He lived life walking with God, talking with God. It was life to be with God. And he got to know God very, very well by walking day by day, moment by moment. You know, I find one thing rather interesting. The three legs of the stool, what's leg number one? The Bible. We talked about it last night. Did Enoch have a Bible? Did Abraham have a Bible? How in the world did Enoch or Abraham walk with God when they didn't have the Bible? Evidently, God must talk back. Now, just because they didn't, don't you chuck the Bible and think, well, I'm going to be like Enoch. 
you have it, use it. Right? I think some of us try to be like Enoch. We leave it on the shelf. Let it collect dust. But you get the point. Enoch lived life with God. And I would like to suggest that as a result, he got to know God. He was physically present, walking in God's presence, doing life together in conversational relationship. Knowing him, knowing God, is the key to knowing his voice. Familiar with his tone, mannerisms, inflections, unique way of interacting with you. Have you ever had somebody call up that you haven't talked to in years and said, I'll bet you can't figure out who this is, and you knew instantly who it was? Why? Because you took a class on how to recognize their voice? No, because you hung out with them long enough that even though you couldn't explain why you can tell their voice against anyone else's, you can't. Just little ways they use words, words they use, um, inflections, emphases, and so on. And I believe that God wants to hang out with us and walk and talk with us to the point where we will know him so intimately that his voice is clear and in fact cannot be counterfeited. Seek him daily and you will come to know his voice. If you come to him in faith, he will speak his mysteries to you personally. Our hearts will often burn within us as one draws near to commune with us as he did with... Enoch, Enoch. Maury Vendon tells a story when he was a pastor in Grand Junction, Colorado. There was an older lady in the church named Grandma Perkins. And Grandma Perkins could talk. Talk, 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 talk. So one day, Morris Vendon went to visit her and her husband at their home. And as usual, Grandma Perkins talked and talked and talked and talked until finally she paused for a breath And her husband spoke up and he said, Pastor, have you noticed my wife's speech impediment? No, I haven't, said Morris Vendon. Yes, she has to stop for breath. (laughs) We say our prayers. We talk and talk and talk. We go down our list. We pray for all the people and all the situations and all the needs that we need to pray for. And when we get done, we say amen over and out, and off we go to join the right race. And God is saying, but could, could, I get a, could I get a word in? Oh, maybe tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow. And intensity has taken possession of our world. You know, when I was a kid and, commu- and computers and electronics and things were just beginning to come in due to the space program and it all, They were predicting we'd have so much leisure time we wouldn't know what to do with ourselves because so many things would be being done for us with technology. And all it has done is speed us up. Entertainment. You walk down the street today and is there there a young person who is hearing anything but what's being piped into their ears through their headphones? Does anybody hear the birds anymore? We got out of our car uh, today after being over at the garden, Dow Gardens, at, at our Airbnb, and there was this cardinal up on a wire, not 20 feet away, just shouting. It was hilarious. But Marilyn said it sounded like he was laughing at us. 
But so often we have something pumping into our ears, pumping into our eyes, music and videos. We've got our computers going. Is there ever a moment that we're not away from our cell phone and checking up on this, that, and the other thing? And then you add to that the struggle to make a living and pay for all those gadgets and make things work. And in the midst of that maddening rush, God is trying to be heard. But how can he be heard when we are neither still nor deeply know him? You've probably heard the illustration, a a New Yorker, walking down through Times Square with a Native American, and all of a sudden a Native American man says, Did you hear that? And the New Yorker goes, What? There's noise, horns honking, people laughing, talking, there's noise. Oh, he said, Come here. And the Native American goes over in there in a little a little uh, flower pot over by, the, by a doorway is a cricket. Chirping away. And the man says, How in the world did you hear that? Well, the Native American said, have you got some change? Some man pulled some change out of his pocket, and the Native American just threw it up in the air. Instantly at everybody's attention. They all could hear coins hit the sidewalk, but they couldn't hear the, the cricket. In our devotional life, so often we fail to experience real communion with God. We're in too big of a hurry, too little time, too many distractions. We pause for a moment, a quick prayer. We move on, not waiting We don't have time to just hang out and listen to see what God might have to say back. And as a result, we leave more burdened than we came. God desires and we need to pause in his presence. Sit down for companionship, not just to say what we have to say. How do we know? Now, there there are folks out there that believe it's, dangerous what I'm preaching tonight because if we expect God to talk to us maybe it'll be the wrong voice how do I know it's going to be God's voice well I think that's a fair question and I only know of one verse to go to to answer it John 10 verse 2 the one coming in through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep you know the shepherd never has to get in any other way he always comes through the gate right Anybody coming over the wall, be a little suspect of them. To this one, the gatekeeper opens, and the sheep hear his call. His own sheep he calls by name and leads them out. When he might bring out all his own, he travels in front of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his call. Now, your translation probably uses the word voice in at least one of those places. But the reason I put call all three places is because it's the same Greek word. You could use call. It's the word phone, by the way, from which we get phonograph and saxophone and so on. Sound, voice. So you could say his sheep hear his sound, his own sheep he sounds by name, and they know his sound. Or you could say they hear his voice, he voices them by name, and they they know his voice. It's the same word all the way through. And the point being is, how do sheep get to know the sound of that shepherd? such that they will not follow anyone else. Do they take a seminar on recognizing the shepherd's voice? No. What do they do? They just grow up day by day hearing the shepherd's voice. And they get to know it to the point where nobody can fool them. And they're just dumb sheep. So what is our protection 
in knowing that we're hearing the right voice? It's spending lots and lots of time in the presence of our shepherd. And he says, if you become my sheep and you hang out with me day by day by day by day by day, you will get to know my voice and no one will be able to counterfeit it because you will know my voice. And I will call and I will lead you out. You know, God has many more ways to speak to us than words. You do realize that language is really cumbersome. I mean, you think about it. I can say a word up here, and all it is is a sound that's come to have an association in your mind with some kind of a mental picture. And guess what? We all have a slightly different mental picture for that same sound. That's why you can say words and the other person doesn't hear the same thing. And you say, well, I'm just saying it in plain English. <laughs> no, it sounds interpreted in the mind. And you know good and well as husbands and wives, you've said the same words and discovered the other one was not hearing the same thing. I am delighted that God can bypass the cumbersomeness of language and speak directly to our minds. Pictures, sounds, senses, words, whatever. He's got a million ways beyond just words. Be still. We need to listen and know. We need to walk with God and know Him intimately. I believe if we get to know Him intimately and we spend time waiting in His presence, He will talk back and we will know His voice. And He will not allow Satan to counterfeit and lead us astray. Would any loving father sit back while someone was leading their child astray, trying to sound like him, without jumping in and saying, wait a minute, that's not me? And I believe God will be looking out for us. But let me tell you this, if you don't have an ongoing daily devotional time with Jesus where you're reading, listening, spending time together... Thinking you're hearing God's voice can be dangerous because if you don't take the time to be still and know him, Satan can lead us astray. Our safety is not in technique or method or principle. Our safety is in the depth of relationship. As I mentioned, I think it was a couple of days ago, the first verse of Psalm 23 doesn't say the Lord is my shepherd. It says the Lord is the one shepherding me. Very intimate in its wording. Be still. Listen. Don't just talk and move on. And know. Be regularly in the shepherd's presence and walk with God. Let's talk just a minute about prayer language. I remember when I was growing up and everybody prayed in these and thous. I asked my mother, why do we say thee and thou when we talk to God? And my mother said, because it's a special reverent way to talk to God. Okay. Now, since then, I've learned that that's a complete fallacy. Did you realize that? Thee and thou is simply the second person singular pronouns in the time of Elizabethanism, King James, Shakespeare, 400 years ago. And you, ye, and your is second person plural. Now, we've lost that in modern-day English, right? 
If I say you, I can be talking to one of you. If I say you, I can be talking to all of you. Unless I'm in the South, I'd say y'all. Then we know it means all of you. But back 400 years ago, when the King James Version of the Bible was translated, thee and thou would mean speaking to one person. If I'd say, wouldst thou come to my house, I'm talking to one of you. If I say, would ye come to my house, I'm talking to all of you. And here's what's really interesting. Back then, they had what they called the majestic plural. When the king spoke, he spoke in the plural. We have decided. And believe it or not, when you spoke to the king, you spoke in plural or you could lose your head. It was disrespectful to speak in the singular. You spoke in the plural. So when you spoke to the king, you would never use thee or thou. You would only use you, ye, or your. The king says, we have decided. You address the king as you, ye, and your. You would never use thee and thou. That was disrespectful. And yet, when I was growing up, that had become the respectful way to talk to God. Now, believe it or not, I don't think God cares. He just wants you to talk to him. I know some people get all hung up. You've got to use the right name. You've got to, whatever. I don't believe that. God calls himself by all kinds of names, and he just wants us to talk to him. And if you use thee or thou, God bless you. If you use you and your, that's just fine too. And the reason I'm kind of saying all this is because I think Satan wants us to feel like we have to go into some kind of special mode to talk worthily so God will hear. And I'd like to suggest if you know how to talk, you know how to pray. Amen. Very simple. Let me give you one quick illustration of the value of the old English pronouns. We're going to go to Matthew 26 when Jesus is standing before Caiaphas at the midnight trial. I've got the King James in one column and the New King James in the other. And about the only difference is those they took away the Elizabethan English. The high priest rose and said to him, Answerest thou nothing. How many people is the high priest talking to? One. He's talking to Jesus. What is it that these witnesses say against thee? One person. And Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said to him, I adjure thee, Jesus, by the living God, that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Now, reading this in the newer English with you all the way through, you really pretty well know he's talking to just one person. But now watch where it goes in the next verse. And Jesus said to him, thou hast said. Who's he talking back to? One person, Caiaphas. But notice what he does next. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter ye shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Now, if you read that in the King James, it sounds like he's saying all of that just to Caiaphas in the New King James. But in the Old, you can realize Jesus looks back at Caiaphas and he says, you nailed it, buddy, when you asked, you know, who I was. Am I the Messiah? Yes, you said it. Thou sayest. Nevertheless, and now he turns to the entire room full of the Senate. And he says, nevertheless, I say to you all, y'all are going to see me coming. <laughs> Do you see that? So by reading the old King James, you can actually, in a few places like this, get a whole new dynamic to the moment. 
So there is value to it. But I have to tell you, please, don't get the idea that you somehow have to use a special language in order to talk to God. Talk to God as you would talk to a friend. Jesus said, I no longer call you servants. Servant doesn't know what the master's doing. I've called you friends. For all things that I've heard from the Father, I've made known to you. He calls us friends. A servant or a slave is someone who does work and you give them just enough to stay alive so they can work more. An employee is someone you value a little more than that and you actually reward them for their work with a paycheck. A partner is someone who is equal in the task with you, a trusted ally. Family is blood. Whether you like them or not, you're stuck with them. A friend is somebody you choose to hang out with. And Jesus says, I've chosen you. You're not just my kids, you're my friends. You're not my slaves, you're not my servants. We're friends. And by the way, in prayer, I believe that absolutely no subject is inappropriate because God already knows what you're thinking. Have you read some of those, what we call the imprecatory psalms? You know, in some psalms, David is saying, oh God, I just love you, I love to be in your house, I just want to hang out here forever. And then in the next psalm, he's saying, kill my enemies and kill their children slowly. (laughs) And we say, is this God's will? And I think what we need to recognize is the psalms is David's prayer life. And sometimes he was really feeling great. David kind of wore his emotions right out there. And some days he wanted to kill his enemies and slowly. Now, was he praying what God wanted? Kill my enemies slowly. I don't think so. But you know, if you want to kill somebody, who should you talk to about it? And so we're mad enough we want to kill somebody. And we go to God and we say, God, I'm having a little anger problem. (laughs) You know? I'm a little upset here. Could you kind of calm me down a little bit? And God says, I know you want to kill him. Let's talk about it. By the way, if you want to kill somebody, you better just tell God. You tell somebody else, you might end up in trouble. I mean, if you want to go out and commit adultery with somebody, who should you tell? God, I want to go commit adultery with that person. Now, let's talk about it. And God says, you came to the right place. I'll help you deal with it. So I'm serious when I say no subject is inappropriate. We're sitting around saying, God, I'm a little upset. You know, I'm a little lustful here. And God is saying, you're lying to me. We can't get anywhere while you're lying to me. Just be honest. You want to kill him. You want to sleep with him. You want to whatever. Now let's deal with it. So I believe prayer is really a wide open conversation. And if you know how to talk, you know how to pray. Just talk to God. And take some time to listen. One of the best things that has helped me in prayer, because I have a dickens of a time with prayer, I have to admit. If I can't sleep, all I have to do is get up and decide I'm going to pray for an hour. I'll be asleep in ten minutes. Three minutes. There will be drool on the couch, you know. So... For me to pray sometimes means I get on the treadmill and walk. (laughs) Stand, so I stay awake, or journal. Journaling is a great way because 
I mentioned this, I think, last night as well. If you write, it focuses your mind rather than just thinking. Recording your prayers and God's responses is a great thing to do. You know, when you start to pray, well, God, I want to talk to you and just start to write down what's coming to your mind to say to him, and you'll be amazed what ends up on the paper. You can use pen and paper, computer, tablet. I find that it's not good for me to use the computer because I type furiously. I need to relax and slow down, so it's better for me to just push the pen over the paper. You can do sketchy notes or bullet points or lengthy paragraphs, but journaling will slow you down to think, listen, and hear at the speed of your pen instead of the speed of your mind, which goes flitting all over the place. It takes time, quantity time, and that brings some quality. And secondly here, writing your prayers down records interactions with God for later recall. We used to call that counting your blessings. How can you count your blessings if you can't see them, so to speak? Remember when Israel went through the Jordan at the end of the 40 years? God gave instructions to Joshua to give instructions for one man from each tribe to pick up the biggest rock he could carry from the middle of the river that was normally covered with water and take it to the far side and they'd make a big pile of 12 large stones. Why? They were to be called stones of remembrance. Generations later, people would say, what's that pile of stones? The children would say and the parents would say, well, those are the stones that used to be in the middle of the river right there. But God parted the river and brought us in to remember what God had done. You know, sometimes we're in springtime like we are here now. And sometimes we're in the dead of winter spiritually, right? Things are kind of frozen. And it's when we're in those dry times like we have in Arizona that we need to be able to go back and remind ourselves that God is there. He has been there so many times. And so I think recording your prayers and journaling is a great thing to do so you can go back in the dry spells and see the showers of blessings and it can lift you out of the doldrums. George Mueller. If you haven't read a biography of George Mueller, go get one and read it. Phenomenal. A man of prayer from the 1800s who uh, did amazing things on prayer alone. One of the most inspiring biographies you'll ever read. Over his 60 years of praying and journaling, when he died, they found 50,000 recorded prayers and answers in his journals. That's just two or three a day over 60 years. It accumulates. It accumulates. Now, I've been lazy. I'm not even close to that. But I wonder how much stronger I would be spiritually if I had done the same thing. And it enables you, journaling, to recognize familiar patterns. How God has interacted in the past. One thing I learned recently, we were going through a series at my church with the men uh, called Conquer. And it deals with the battle that men have with sexual addiction and pornography. Now, when I first brought it up to my church, everyone was like, dare in the headlights. And I knew they wouldn't come. So I said, you may know someone who's struggling with that, so come so you can help them. The reality is, all of the research shows that 60% of the men who are sitting weekly in church are battling with sexual addiction and pornography. And for pastors, it's only 50%. 
So, we had a group of guys. We didn't have the whole bunch, but we had a pretty good group, and we were going through this. And one of the things I learned in this video series, it's a powerful video series, was that in addiction, anybody who's a counselor would already know this, but in addiction, handling addiction, one of the things that you teach your uh, counselees to do is to journal their days, journal their highs and lows and the ups and downs and what's going on with them emotionally. Because over time, you can begin to see patterns. And you can begin to recognize how a pattern is developing which leads to relapse. And you can actually begin to interdict that and change the direction. And I think the same thing can happen with prayer. If we journal our prayers and we're able to go back and look, we can actually go back and see that we've been through dry times like this before, but God always came through. And we need to remind ourselves. And I got so many answers to prayer that I can't remember because I didn't write them down. So journaling is a very, very positive thing that you can do to help focus your prayer life. Now, I believe God has many, many ways, creative ways, that He tries to speak to us. And I'm afraid sometimes we're not tuned in to the ways He's trying to talk to us. We maybe have a stereotype that it's going to be this way or that way. God has a very wide vocabulary. He can speak in many different ways if we will be still and we will know Him. So to wrap up tonight, I want to go through at least give you eight possible ways that God can speak. My first and favorite one is what I call peace or pressure. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, that means you won't be able to figure it out but it will be real, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I've discovered that when I'm in line with God, even if I'm in pain or stress or behind a deadline, there is a quiet peace inside. I've discovered any time I want something so bad, I've just got to have it, it's always wrong. But if I can rest and relax and let it go, let it come or let it go, I've never been wrong. I've never had God steer me wrong couple of illustrations on that. This seems to be the most consistent way over time that God has spoken in my life. A dis-ease, an uneasiness, a pressure inside, an unsettledness, or just a gentle peace. When I was in college, I drove a Pinto. Now before me, my wife dated cars. But I know she didn't date me for my car. I drove a Pinto. In college, my parents were able to give me a place to live. They lived right near Pacific Union College. But I had to pay my tuition, my clothes, my car, and all those expenses. They gave me room and board. That's what they could afford to do. So, have any of you been to Pacific Union College? It's a winding road up and down the hill. It's hard on tires. In my freshman year, I needed tires on my car. And I was away from the school for a, a number of weeks during the summer doing some evangelism. And do any of you remember Montgomery Wards? My grandpa called it monkey wards. 
Well, in Napa, California, 20 miles down the valley, Monkey Wards was having a sale on tires, and I was going to be out of town during the sale. Now, if you have a Pinto, you need all the cool you can get, right? And they had two different tires. One was a little wider, and one was the regulars. Well, now, which, at least 50 years ago, would you want in your car? You want the wide ones, right? That's a little, little cooler. And you know what? They were within $1 of the same price. And their warranty was within, it was like forty or 42000 So the difference was negligible. So I wanted the wider tires. And for some reason, I had a, uh. I was just kind of learning this then, but I just kind of had this unsettledness. And I was out of town, and I remember calling my dad up and saying, I want the wider tires, but I guess I'm going to get the narrower ones, the regulars. I'll send you a check. Would you go down and have them put on my car while the sale's on because I'm out of town? So he went down and had the tires put on. You know, I figured I'll never have a clue what God was trying to say or whether I just was having a bad day or something. Skip forward. Last quarter of my senior year, I've just gotten married. I am about six weeks from employment at the Southern California Conference as an intern, and it'll be another two weeks for a check, and I needed tires. 27,000 miles of the Pacific Union College Hill burned off 40,000 miles worth of tire. Well, you know what that means. If I go back to Monkey Wards, they'll give me proration. I'll get a third off, at least. So I decided I'd better pull out the credit card, buy the tires, because I needed tires. So I went down to Montgomery Wards, and I said to the man inside, come out and look at my tires. I think I'm going to get a good pro rating on a new set. And he came out, and he looked at him, and he said, did you get a recall notice on those? I said, no, what does that mean? I, sa I said, does it mean the warranty's no good? He said, no, it means you get a free set of tires. All of a sudden, I realized God knew if I bought the narrow ones, I had a free set coming when I needed them. <laughs> Would it have been a sin to buy the wider ones? No. no. But if I listen, God has a blessing. You got that? That peace or pressure. I've been looking for a car. Right now, I've got an old Prius that's old. And uh, I, got, I know what I want, and I found a car very similar to what I want. I found a car that's only 100 miles old from a nice Christian young man that I trust. He bought it, and then some life things change. It's only two months old. It's like getting a new car without the new car hit when you drive off the lot. And in Arizona, from a private party, you don't have to pay the tax. So it's like saving $4,000. I had no peace about buying the car. It's like, have I lost my mind? This is a good deal. I have no idea what God has in store, but I didn't buy the car. Now, I tell you, I wish I'd have followed that piece of pressure every time from the Pinto to now. I'd have saved thousands of dollars. But I want something. You know what I mean? And I can't listen. Piece of pressure. I think that's one of the most... Strong ways that God will show you His voice is if it's His way, no matter how much stress or difficulty or time pressure you're in, God can give you a peace that passes understanding. And if you don't have that peace, don't move. Number two, providential circumstances. 
In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. You know when you're doing a jigsaw puzzle, what do you do first? All the edges, you know? And then you look for bright color spots and you pull those in, right? And the more pieces you get in place, the easier it is to tell where the next piece goes, right? And I think providence is kind of like that. As the pieces begin to fall in place more and more, there's a clear direction that takes place. Marilyn and I met over music, as I told you on Sabbath. And when we got married, we really felt that God probably was calling us into some kind of musical ministry. And of course, that would be within the Adventist setting, being singing evangelists. Get hired by an evangelist, we do the music and the visitation and help out. We tried to find a job in that zero. So we did what every good ministry student should do, take the one and only call you're offered. (laughs) And we went to Southern California. About a year and a half later, a big name evangelist got our names and called us. And we thought, yes, God is finally listening. And then we interviewed a couple people who had worked for him before, and we weren't so sure we wanted to work for him. And then the conference said, you want to do evangelism? And I said, I didn't say it, I thought it. Haven't you been listening? And the conference said, oh, you shouldn't go work for that evangelist because he's working at a level of the church that they don't even ordain people there. It's the local conference. You could end up kind of in no man's land on ordination and the future as a minister. So why don't you just stay right here in Southern California Conference and we'll put you into evangelism. You talking about Providence? You know, God gets this one to tweak that one, and all of a sudden the new door opens. Wow, it was like God is leading. We could see the providence all over the place. So we told the conference, we'll stay here and do evangelism, and we told the big-name evangelist, sorry, appreciate the call, but we're going to stay local. And we went to bed that night. Now I'm going to pull a switch on you. We saw clear providence. We went to bed that night. And we both woke up the next morning and looked at each other and almost simultaneously said, I have never felt such a lack of peace in my life. All the providence pointed in one direction. We made the decision and God pulled the peace plug. And we had to take the other call. And the local conference buddies thought we were nuts. They thought we were trying to run off and be stars, you know, big names. And as I mentioned before, working for that evangelist had Maryland down to 100 pounds, under 100 pounds in a year, 97. And the stress was incredible. But that's where I learned about the gospel and how to lead a person to Christ. So, I believe in providence, but even more, I believe in peace or pressure. You go where providence leads, but boy, if God pulls the peace, go where it doesn't seem logical as long as you have peace. Does that make sense? Number three, nature. Somehow I believe if you can get out of the city and into God's second book. Of course, which book did he write first? He wrote nature first. That's his first book. The Bible's his second book. But anyway, you know, Einstein said even an atheist is only half an atheist at night when he looks up at the stars. During the French Revolution, the revolutionaries told the Christians The Christian peasants will destroy your churches, your Bibles, your literature. Everything that reminds you of God will destroy. And the peasants said, but you'll leave us the stars. When you're perplexed or fearful or overwhelmed, I suggest you step into the natural world and listen for the voice of God. 
I remember one time I went to a pastor's meeting and I was told we should have a five-year plan. You should be thinking five years ahead for your sermons, five years ahead for where your church is headed. I'm sorry, folks, but I'm lucky to have a five-day plan. I want to kind of flow with each day. I think I'd have been a good hippie. And I was really frustrated by that. I was really frustrated. I went home and and I, I, I happened to live at that point about five houses from the end of the road and there was open space for 20 miles. And I headed out into the woods and I was talking to God because I don't know how to do a five-year plan. And, you know, how do I do this? It's not how I think. I have a cousin who plans his sermons up to five years in advance. I don't even know what I'm going to preach on next Sabbath usually. It's whatever God leads me to that week in the series and where we're going. I have a terrible time with advanced planning. Um, probably need to work on that. But I remember telling God, what am I supposed to do? And just walking out there in the woods, I seemed to hear God clearly say, although it was very undramatic, I have the five-year plan. If you'll just stick with me day by day, I'll get you there. You go with the day-by-day plan of following me, and I'll get you to the five years. I didn't need to worry about it, but it was somehow getting out in nature You know, the world has tried to co-opt the rainbow, but the rainbow starts in Scripture. And it starts by God using the rainbow to say, I'm watching, I'm listening, I'm taking care of you. And I believe every time you see a rainbow, have you ever noticed when you're driving, the rainbow's always where only the passenger can see it? (laughs) It really bugs me. You know, you're trying to look in the mirror, where's that rainbow? Marilyn says, look at that rainbow! I can't look. But whenever you see a rainbow, don't let the world co-opt the rainbow. See the rainbow. When you see a rainbow, that's God trying to tell you something. I'm here. I'm watching. I care. I had a friend who went back to school after raising her children. So 20 years out of college, she heads back. So now she's sitting in classes with young people 20 years younger than her who have been in school and know the ropes, and she's been out, and she's floundering, she's struggling. And she has to go take a final test one day. And as she's driving, she's crying, Lord, am I on track? Am I really doing what I'm supposed to do? I'm scared. Could you give me a little indication? She said she drove up over a hill, and there was the building where she was going to take the test. And right over the top was her rainbow. She said, thanks, Lord. Went in and aced the test. Music. Have you ever had music speak to you? He put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Marilyn and I learned a song back in 1996 called Where He Leads Me by Twyla Paris. We learned it shortly before Christmas time. We sang it a few times at our church. We always lead worship with the songs we do. And yet that song just kind of settled into our hearts. There was something special about it. And then about Christmas time, I got a phone call from a conference president in Arizona. We were living in California at the time near San Francisco. And we loved where we were living. And we loved our church. And we got an invitation to go pastor a big conservative Adventist church that we discovered was in quite a bit of conflict in dry, hot Phoenix, Arizona. And I had zero interest in going. I laughed when the conference president asked. I said, I'm not interested in that. 
Well, he said, pray about it. I said, okay. And you know, I couldn't shake it. I couldn't shake it. So I finally agreed to go do the interview. So we flew to Phoenix. And by the way, the interview was, I insisted that they invite the whole church, have a church meeting, not just the board. I wanted to meet the church. I told that church, those people, about 100 of them were there. I told them everything I knew they would not want to hear. I deliberately tried to throw the interview because I didn't want to go. Shame on me. And they still voted four to one for me to come, and I was angry with God because I didn't want to have to make that decision. And driving home from the San Francisco airport, Marilyn and I both knew that's what we were supposed to do. God just laid it on our hearts. And we realized that God had given us that song, Where He Leads Me, I Will Follow. Because he was going to lead us somewhere we didn't want to go. We did not want to go. And I've been there 22 years, and it's been the best experience of my life. The first three years, nah, they were bad. But God knew what he was doing, cleared some things out. You know, when we'd been there 20 years, I said, it's been an absolute joy pastoring this church for the last 17 years. Have you ever heard the story of someone back in the cassette tape days who's discouraged and troubled? They pop the cassette tape in the car and just the right song comes out. You don't get to choose your song on the cassette tape, right? It's the next one. Or you flip on the radio, boom, there's a song that speaks. Feeling discouraged, God often will speak through music. Number five, people. Each one has received a gift. Minister to one another as good stewards of the grace of God. I moved to Phoenix, kicking and screaming. And I was a AAA auto insurance member for a number of years in California. And I figured, we'll just go AAA in Arizona. You know, they'll just move the policy over. No. And Maryland had had an accident, a little accident in San Francisco uh, within the last two years. And Two weeks before I moved, I got a ticket. So I go to try to get insurance, and I can't buy insurance. They won't sell it to me. How am I going to get insurance? Can't afford to live in Arizona with high insurance. It's a high insurance state anyway. And I was frustrated. It was already over 100 degrees, and it was only May. And I was frustrated and hot, and we had cars from Northern California coast that didn't have decent air conditioners. And I got home from another round down at AAA, and I was really upset. I said to Marilyn, I don't know what we're doing here. I don't want to be here. Can't even buy insurance. And the phone rang. And a good friend of mine named Bill was calling from Europe. It was the middle of the night over there. And he said, how are you doing, Gary? He said, I just felt God nudge me that I needed to call you and encourage you. <laughs> I said, thank you, Jesus. Right? God spoke and gave me what I needed, and sure enough, they finally sold me insurance, and we're still with them. People. God speaks through people. Scripture. This is the no-brainer. Scripture. Uh, your word's a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The Bible's God's voice speaking to us just as surely as if we could hear it with our ears. If we realize this, with what awe would we open God's word? With what earnestness would we search its precepts? The reading and contemplation of the scripture would be regarded as an audience with the infinite one. 
I'd been at the Glendale Church about three and a half years. And during that time, I'd memorized two or three psalms. I'm not a big memorized person, but I'd memorized two or three psalms, and one of them was Psalm 16. And I'd recite it at stoplights, and you know, just to keep it in my memory. And after I'd been in Phoenix three and a half years, I got a call from the Colorado Conference president. I think it's the Colorado-Wyoming Conference. Who thought that I was the one that God had laid on his mind, and he was a man of prayer that I trusted, to give me a call to pastor in Colorado Springs. Well, where would you rather pastor? Phoenix or Colorado Springs? And the first three years that that church had been really tough, I'd have been happy to leave. But I was really conflicted because I didn't sense God was saying go. So if he's a man of prayer and God is saying this is the man you need to call, and I'm a man of prayer, probably not nearly the man of prayer he is, but I'm praying and God's not giving the same answer, who am I supposed to listen to? At the end of two weeks, I had no answer. And I knew he was going to call the next day. And I got home 10, 10, 30 one night. So everything was dark. Marilyn was asleep. And I went to the bedroom and I just kind of knelt down on the floor, put my forehead on the carpet, you know, all the way down and said, God, what's going on? I need an answer. He's a man of prayer. He thinks I'm the one. I'm trying to pray. I don't have any conviction. What do I do? And a phrase from Psalm 16 went zinging through my head. Totally out of context. But the phrase that went through was, their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another. And it was clear as a bell to me. God was saying, don't hasten anywhere. Stay right where you are. I'd much rather live in Colorado Springs. Don't go looking for another. Stay with what I've gotten you. And exegetically, that's not what the passage means at all. Now let me tell you, I believe if you will take the Word of God and put it in your mind, God will use it in the most amazing ways to speak to you. And it's much more effective if you've memorized it. He can really use those phrases than if you've just read about it. I think the Scriptures, memorizing Scripture, is extremely powerful. One other thing on the Scripture speaking, I am a preacher who at home, I tend to preach long series. Now, what would you think a long series is? Like a dozen sermons on one topic? That's a pretty long series, isn't it? I spent four and a half years in the Gospel of John, 140 sermons. We had a wonderful trip through the Gospel of John, and we all laughed at how long it was. But you know what I discovered, and I've discovered it several other times? I may be working my way through the Gospel of John, and a crisis comes, a special issue shows up at the church that needs to be spoken to. And do you know what? Every single time, the next passage in that book I've been going through speaks to it. I don't think I've ever had to break the series to speak to the issue. Somehow, God has had us right where we needed it. The Bible is amazing in how it can lead us. Number seven, inspirational reading material. There's a lot of good stuff outside of the Bible of course, we have the writings of Ellen White that we as Seventh-day Adventists believe have special inspiration. But even beyond that, biographies of great Christians and the writings of those who have gone the road before can give incredible, 
direction and God can speak through writings um, and biographies of great Christians. And finally, I want to close with this one. Specific thoughts, impressions, and instructions. Does God ever just say, turn right now? Sometimes he does. You will hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. I was driving home from Montana to Pacific Union College in Central California one spring break, and in one of the most desolate, awful places on planet Earth to be, Winnemucca, Nevada. Has anybody ever been there? That is one out-of-the-way place. Uh, another college buddy and I named Harry, he was driving, and we got into a combination sand and snowstorm. You couldn't see anything because what was blowing across was both sand and snow. It was dirty and it was cold. And as we're driving along, you know, slowing down, all of a sudden there's a car dead stopped in front of us. We discovered that a guy in a pickup had stopped right in the middle of the road. At least pull off people if you can't see where you're going. Get off the road. He stops right in the middle of the road. Another car stopped behind him that was towing an additional car. And we, in my Pinto, were the fourth. And right after we stopped, an 18-wheeler pulled up behind us and stopped. And God put ants in my pants, if you know what I mean. I couldn't sit still. I said, Harry, get this car off the road. I mean, God put such a dis-ease that I, I, had, I had to get out of there right now. And I said, Harry, get this car off the road. Get this car off the road. Get this car off the road. He finally, I said, right over there. Right? So he pulls over, you know, back and forth, gets out of there like you're getting out of a parallel parking place, you know. And I said, back up, back up. We backed up. We got backed up about, we were just, maybe 30 feet behind that semi that had pulled up behind us. And another semi never even hit his brakes. And plowed into that semi, pushed the forward semi forward, pushed the towed car on top of the other car, and it slid off and parked in the trunk. Now what happens to pinos when they're rear-ended? And my entire car length plus another one was gone. I am convinced God said, get off the road. Every once in a while, God will give you absolute clear instructions. And the very best story I know on that comes from my cousin Lee. Over 20 years ago, when Lee was pastoring at Auburn Academy in western Washington State, a lady loaned him a book. It was a book called Him by a guy named Kenneth Fields. And she brought Lee this book. Now Lee, all he ever does is preach on Jesus. That's kind of why he's the one who developed the All About Jesus seminar we're doing here. In fact, Lee preached on Jesus so much that at one point some of his elders went to the conference president and said, would you give us someone who will preach on something besides just always Jesus? Which is kind of a strange request, isn't it? Anyway, so this woman knew Lee was into Jesus, and she brought him this little book, and she said, this is a little book by a guy that I went to school with. He was an uh, English teacher in our academies, and he wrote this little book, and it's just little vignettes on the life of Jesus, on the stories in the Gospels. And she said, I think you'll really enjoy it. She said, however, the man who wrote it has lost his way and gone into a far country. He's no longer following the Lord. And the book's out of print, so I want it back. 
Lee said, okay, thank you. And Lee said he laid it, you know, books are normally this way on the bookshelf. He laid it this way, right in front of his desk on top of some books on the bookshelf. He said, I didn't see it for two years. One morning, he looks up, and there's that book staring at him. And he says, oh, no, this woman wanted that book back. I haven't even opened it. I better read something right now out of it so I can call her and tell her I enjoyed it and give it back to her. So he opened it up, and he read the first two chapters. And the book had him in tears. It touched him deeply. And all of a sudden, and again, you got to realize, when we tell these stories, it wasn't dramatic, but it was real. His, a voice said to him, not a verbal voice, but call Kenneth Fields right now and tell him what the book meant to you. Lee said, God doesn't speak to me like that. You know, I don't, I don't think it, go get a drink of water, you know, that kind of thing. And Lee's a little bit like me. He's not a door-to-door person, doesn't like cold calls. Lee said, God, that's ridiculous. I don't want to call him. And the, 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 the command came in his conscience, call him right now. I'll look like a fool. Call him. Okay. So Lee called directory assistance. Remember what it was back then? Area code 5551212. Directory assistance, he'd heard that maybe he lived on the Olympic Peninsula west of Seattle. So we called that area code. Do you have any one by the name of Kenneth Fields? The lady said, we have two. He said, I'll take both. One was in Port Angeles, one was in Squim. Give me both of them. Now Lee's sitting there trying to figure out which one to call. He decides to call the one in Squim. It's closer. And what does he hope? Hopes he's not home. He gets the message machine. He can leave a little message and be done with it. And the phone rings, and the other end picks up, hello? And Lee said, are you Kenneth Fields? Yes. Lee said, you don't know me. My name's Lee Vended. Don't hang up. I'm not a telemarketer. Did you ever write a little book called Him? And the voice said, yes. And Lee said, well, this will sound really weird. But I just read a couple chapters in the book. And I felt that God was telling me to call you up right now and tell you how much the book meant to me. Pretty bizarre, isn't it? And the man on the other end started to sob. And finally, Lee said, are you okay? And he said, just a minute, don't hang up. And he got his composure back. And Kenneth Fields said to Lee, I have wandered far from home. I've done the prodigal son times ten, and I figured for sure there was no waiting father for me. I've been pretty lonely here in the pig pen, and I've been wishing I could go home. But I just didn't feel like God would have time for me. I haven't talked to God in so long, I've forgotten how to do it. But this morning, this morning, he said, I actually got down on my knees and said, God, if you're out there and you listen to prodigals, I'd sure like to know if I ever did anything in my life that made you smile or would have some value that would give me encouragement that maybe I might come home. And he said, while I was on my knees, you called. I wish I had a story like that. That's why I use Lee's story. That is such a good story. He said, I'll be in church next Sabbath. 
Sometimes God gives us very specific thoughts, impressions. Sometimes he speaks through other writings or scripture or people or song or nature or providential circumstances or just peace or pressure in your heart. Why have I gone through all these? I want you to recognize what a broad vocabulary God has. Prayer is not monologue, it's dialogue, but sometimes we're not open to the way God is talking back. Open up and listen. He says, the sheep hear his voice. My sheep hear my voice and they follow because they know my voice. The sheep know the sound of the shepherd. Are you spending the kind of time with Jesus that you can actually get to know his voice? Do you have time to be still in his presence long enough for him to whisper? Because God hates to yell. Because yelling doesn't promote intimacy. And God is not primarily looking to get you in line. He is primarily looking for deep, intimate relationship. Have you maybe been listening for only one or two types of sounds? There are a variety of ways that God will speak. Not just instructions or direction or reproofs or commands, but they may be just simple words of love or a song or a whisper. Prayer is dialogue, not monologue. God invites us to be still and know. Jesus, again, I believe that probably every one of us here struggles with this area of prayer. I think it's an area Satan attacks us on vehemently. Lord, I just ask you to bring some breakthroughs. Open us up to listening, not just talking, not just monologuing. And open us up to all the different ways you're trying to speak to us so we don't miss anything. And Lord, please get us over this idea that if you speak, you're going to yell. And help us to recognize that we need to be quiet and still in your presence. And that if we are quiet and still and get to know you well, you promise we will not be fooled by a false voice and that you will lead us as your sheep wherever we should go. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.